0: Welcome to Inside Michigan Business Podcast. This episode is made possible by Dell for Startups, providing solutions for all of your startup needs at special savings. Check out Dell's top business class PCs and accessories and register at StartupNation.com forward slash Dell to save on Dell's awesome lineup of best in class laptops, monitors and accessories. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to the latest podcast episode of Inside Michigan Business. I'm John Gallagher. Uh, I'm your guest host for today, and I'm delighted to welcome my good friend and guest, Randall Charlton. Randall is a British-born entrepreneur who has done business all over the world, from Australia to Saudi Arabia. He came to Detroit in the year 2000, started a fabulously successful biotech firm known as Astorand, and then became director of TechTown. And Randall's the man who turned TechTown into the premier location for entrepreneurship and training and, and so on in Southeast Michigan. So, Randall, welcome.
1: Well, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: We're going to hear uh, a lot today. Among other things, I tell Randall's story in my book, The Englishman and Detroit, A British Entrepreneur Helps Restore a City's Confidence, which is available on Amazon.com and you can order it through your local bookstore. So let's get right to Randall. Randall, as I mentioned, you've, you're a British-born entrepreneur. You've done business all over the world, run a bunch of different companies. Tell us some lessons for entrepreneurship that you've learned over the years.
1: Well, thank you for the question. Um, I think I've learned a number of lessons, some of them are very personal, others not so much. For a start, I think one of the things I would say to any new entrepreneur who has this next great idea is when they're getting in, Think for at the same time about how they're going to get out. And what I mean by that is that if they're getting into what sometimes is called a mom and pop business, where uh, part of the reason for getting in is to create a job long term for yourself and maybe members of your family, well, then understand that. It's what you're trying to do is create a job that maybe lasts for 10, 20 years until until you retire. Alternatively, if you think you've got the next best thing, for certain, you won't have enough money unless you're Elon Musk. Um, So what you're going to have to do is raise quite a bit of money. And that is going to mean diluting your interest. And probably at some time, you're also going to be told, well, thanks very much, Randall. You did a nice little job to start with. Now we're taking it to the big screen. Uh, we need a, a big screen manager. So, you know, you may actually, when you get into that type of company, need to recognize you're designing your own exit at some point fairly soon.
0: Okay. Now, I know uh, one of your lessons has always been uh, treat other people's money like your own. And I know you've you have some funny stories about how you saved money over the years, uh, <laughs> yeah. sleeping on couches rather than expensive hotel rooms. but talk about talk about, you know how do you keep track of how does an entrepreneur keep track of money in a startup?
1: Well, I think it's very important to have, even on a part-time basis, uh, someone handing uh, the accounts, the books, because those books are not going to remain secret. You're going to need to present that information. Um, to banks, to money lenders, to investors, to potential partners, um, so it 's important that your records are kept in a in, in, in a professional way, and you know that 's one important um, piece of advice I give uh, in the early stages. Um, I would also say um, uh, the way you handle yourself um, and your your early money is going to be important um, when you raise further money down the road or you seek to. And, you know, once um, I managed to um, convince uh, some new hard-nosed venture capitalists to invest in my idea by ringing up one of the partners and saying to them, look, have you got a bed for the night? And they said, well, yeah, why? Uh, because there's the Copley Plaza just down the road and you can get um, a room there for five ninety-four a night. I said, I'm not going to spend your money or anybody else's um, on an expensive hotel where you're going to get me up in the morning and drive down to Connecticut at 4.30 a.m. Now, <laughs> they had a laugh. Um, they said, welcome, here's our uh, how to um, get to our home. Um, and the next day when we drove down to Connecticut, um, I started rehearsing my pitch. And they said, oh, you don't need to bother with that. I've already talked on the phone uh, to the other partners. Uh, we're going to invest.
0: Wow. Okay. So it paid off. It paid off. Sleeping yeah. on the couch. Yeah. I know you, uh, when you were at Astorand, which was your biotech company here in Detroit, Very successful and still going strong. Mm -hmm. You built it from yourself and one lab assistant into this amazing company doing tens of millions of dollars of business. But one thing you did, you had a whiteboard. And I I understand you put how many days of uh, cash burn you had left right before the money ran out.
1: Yeah, one of the things um, that I've done in companies uh, that I've been involved in, um, like Astrand, where Uh, the company is designed for high growth and expansion and taking on new people is to be extremely honest and open uh, with all the people that work for you. I used to have regular meetings with the um, Astran staff as they went from one to five to 15 to 25 and then to 125. Um, after each board meeting and tell them what our financial situation was. Um, And that gave them a lot of confidence, surprisingly. Um, But I said to them, look, we're going to be raising money two, three, four times. And each time we've got to make sure that we don't run out before we get the next round in. So they became as interested in raising the money as me and that it was more than once... Um, someone would turn to me in the lab and say, "Rand, what what, what are you doing here? We can get on without you. You need to be out in the street pressing flesh, raising the next round of funding. And and that kind of culture um, in an early stage company, I think, goes a long way to success. The other thing I would say about early stage companies is think hard about... Uh, giving every single person that works in that early stage company an opportunity to share in success. And by that, I don't just mean a good salary and good conditions. I mean, at Astran, for example, we had a share option scheme in which the employees had up to 15% overall of of the company's value. Uh, So everyone that came and worked for the company would over one, two, three years qualify for uh, share options. And they benefited when new investors came along and valued the company and then eventually the company went public.
0: When I interviewed a lot of the employees at Astran for my book, The Englishman in Detroit, they all mentioned that, you know, you didn't have some um gold-plated office off by yourself. Uh you know, you you sat out in the middle of the room With everybody else and you know very approachable so as as a ceo of a growth company it's important to maintain that kind of close relations with your staff
1: absolutely i'm a great believer in the in in the role of the ceo being the coach they're not the glory boys that deliver the the goods on the field um but it's important that the, the coach is approachable and, and is listened to, even when in, they're not right. Um, uh, people have to feel they can come and argue their case. So, as a matter of course, I had a few rules. One is, um, uh, I had I never had to have the biggest office in the building. Um, well, uh, once uh, our HR manager. Um, showed me the, the new office, which was right on the corner and twice the size of everyone else's. I never went in it. I said, look, thanks very much for the thought, but find me somewhere smaller. Um, I've had offices uh, in a staircase. and uh, Did that at, at Tech Town. And people see you becoming, which is what you should be, an integral part of the team, not someone who... Um, uh, rules from uh, above and hands-down um, edicts, if you see what I mean.
0: Sure, sure. Now, after Astoran, after you built that into this amazing company that went public and is very successful and still doing business, you went to TechTown. Now, Wayne State asked you to run TechTown, which is the the entrepreneur incubator at Wayne State in Midtown, Detroit. And one thing that I think you learned there is that not all entrepreneurs are kids, as you said, used to say, eating ramen noodles in their dorm room. I mean, a good portion of the people who came to Town were, what, 45 and, and older. So can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, I think it was really interesting discovery in a time when, as you know, John, um, Detroit um, was going into bankruptcy and not just a financial bankruptcy, but almost cultural bankruptcy. They didn't know where, people didn't know where to go next. And um, uh, I, I think, You know, Tech Town. uh, When I went in there, was um, basically a a a disused warehouse where homeless people had slept. There was Mm. one half of the ground floor that was um, uh, built out, and um, uh, it seemed to me that we were literally starting from ground zero. And we started it by making everybody welcome whether they uh were someone who had a small idea of maybe making a new type of um bread or um uh, a new shop or um some new uh trainers or someone who had a big um uh idea that w- w- was useful for uh, you know worldwide um so I guess um, one of the successes we had at um, TechTown was something that might seem a bit strange now that we've just gone through COVID. Uh, we started what I call collision networking, which um, the idea behind entrepreneurship is to give confidence to people when you're trying to market it. Um, And I don't care who you are when you're starting a new business. If you don't have some self-doubt, you're in for trouble. (laughs) So we started these monthly First Friday meetings. The first one, uh, there was um, a total of, I think it was 12 people. And then it went up and up with each month. And uh, we ended up having over a 1,000 people turning up, many of people who uh, had just left the car industry after thinking that it was going to be their career for life and now having to look um, to find a new job and maybe create their own new job. Um, So um, hearing other people's stories, networking with people who might be able to help or partner with them, I think was a big um, part of um, Tech Town's early success.
0: Yeah. Now, senior entrepreneurs or middle-aged or senior entrepreneurs probably have to have a slightly different approach than, uh, you know, a 20-year-old who might not have much to lose. So what should a, a middle-aged person who wants to give it a go be thinking about that might be different than, a, you know, a college kid starting out?
1: Right. Well, first of all, they shouldn't bet the house, and by that mean, I mean their savings and their pension. Um, they should be, I believe, prepared to lose whatever the money they put into a new business. And I would encourage older entrepreneurs um, to look to establish partnerships um, early on in in, in the game. Um, as you pointed out earlier, we had something like 40% of those people coming through Tech Town were people 45, 50 or older, um, many of them who had never thought of entrepreneurship. Um, one of the things we did at that time was to have a little course um, to sort of try and inform people of what it's going to take to to start a business on their own, so that they could assess their own qualities. And some would think, oh no, maybe entrepreneurship is not for me. I'm better off going back to college and retraining for something. But others would say, yeah, it is. And and then, I mean, the obvious thing one has to think about is um, succession. Um, You know, you might be in um, for five or 10 years, Uh, uh, but it's never too soon to start nurturing um, uh, potential successors. So um, there's that, plus I think it's important when you get into a new business, and I don't care what age you are, but the older you are, the more important what I'm about to say, I believe, is, and that is, You've got to be as fit as you possibly can be. I mean, you may be in a wheelchair. You may have several disabilities. I have many, <laughs> um, as some people have said. But it's going to be stressful, and you better understand that. You may be working six, seven days a week for, for a while at least. And when I decided that I was going to take on the Astoran Challenge and I got the first funding, the first thing you know, I said to my wife, it's right, I've got to start walking every day, jogging a bit. You know, I was in my 60s then. And the older you get, you know, the less energy you tend to have. So being as fit as you possibly can is important. And that comes down to even things like, dare I say it, your your social life. I mean, when I was in my 30s and 40s, I could go out on a Friday night and drink all I liked and, and and maybe do the same on Saturday. But when I got the Astorand um, opportunity, um, I said, okay, right. <laughs> that's uh, it, right. That's it. And, <laughs> right. you know, that's... A,
0: Time to grow up and... Uh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, is there a personality type that is made for entrepreneurship as opposed to someone else? I mean, I guess flexibility is part of it. and
1: Yeah. I, I think... An ability to think laterally is helpful um, because you run into obstacles and it's important not to be put off by what seems to be intractable obstacles. And I think also someone who can think out of the box is helpful. But I've also seen people who have worked for many years in a particular area and they see a real opportunity, and they're very technical uh, about solving that opportunity, and they they solve it in a way that is it, going to create a demand. Um, I'm, you know, I'm thinking of someone, for example, um, who had a, a system for monitoring um, older adults who were living on their own and who were at risk. You know. Um, uh, things that would um, technology that so when they, the adult opened the fridge in the morning, it would record it, so that if they didn't open the fridge, their family uh, maybe in the next state would know. Well, maybe better call mom and see if she's okay, you mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm. And and that was someone who really wasn't an entrepreneur. He had a family problem. He went to solve it, and then had application elsewhere.
0: You know, I know we say in the book, my book, The Englishman in Detroit, that you used to be able to, when you visited a new country, uh, you'd fly in and on the way f- from the airport to downtown, you would see business opportunities. Yeah. So I think that some people, I think, are uh, just have a knack for kind of seeing things that other people don't see.
1: Yeah, I think particularly when you travel overseas, you see gaps in mm-hmm. the way things are done, mm-hmm. um, whether it's um, how a taxi service is organized or um uh, the sort of welcome you get in a hotel um you know the service you get in a shop
0: mm-hmm.
1: um in the early stages of my career i went to many third world countries where you know there were a gazillion opportunities everything from fast food outlets to uh, new hotels to you know new engineering um uh, challenges so um i do think travel does um, broaden the mind and it it does allow you to take a new look at your surroundings and sometimes you see things being done in a foreign country and you think oh my god we, this was done back here in the united states or in england um you know we'd be a lot happier and better
0: right right well okay so uh you spent several years at tech town really made it what it is today i think and then since then you've done a lot of different things including you've worked a lot with the hannon Foundation which is a senior related foundation you're working with a startup called Headtorch. Maybe you'd want to talk about that for a minute.
1: Yes, sure. Uh, head torch, I think is an example of an opportunity that has been laid bare by the recent COVID crisis. Basically, um, and, and just for, f- um, full disclosure, I'm a director and shareholder in, um, head Um, And what the company does, it offers a service to um, various levels of management from the CEO to middle management down to the factory floor in large companies, Um, uh, and that includes some American-based companies, um, uh, to deal with stress in the workplace. You know, when I last checked, the brain, at least other people's, maybe not mine, was the biggest organ in the body. Um, and um, while many companies around the world embrace the concept of providing uh, their employees with a healthy environment and maybe uh, membership of a gym or even a gym on, on, on site, um, very few have realised that... Uh, Work can be extremely stressful. And the last three years have uh, driven up the amount of mental health issues. And at issue is how does a big company deal with them? And we're providing solutions which can be scaled.
0: Good. And then another thing, I mean, yet, yet something else that you've done, uh, of course, is you, you've published your book, sort of a memoir adventure story, really, about your father, who was a kind of an entrepreneur himself. So why don't you talk about who your dad was and what brought you to his story?
1: Sure. Well, the book's called um, The Wicked Pilgrim, and it's a story of a man who happened to be my father. Um, And it's the true story um, uh, of a man who um, had uh, no money, didn't even have a bank account, uh, didn't own a car or a house, rented property, he lived from cash paycheck to paycheck. He was a working journalist on Fleet Street in London. Um, And over three years, he uh, raised the money, found a plan to build a replica of the original Mayflower, found a boat builder with the ability to build it using the tools of the 1600s then found the last sailor of big um, sailing ships, um, an Australian as it happened, um, then found a crew to sail it. He then sailed it across the United States where he gave it um, uh, on arrival at Plymouth Plantation in um, Massachusetts. He gave it to the American people. And here's what's interesting about why he gave it. Um, During the war, he served on General Montgomery's staff. And General Montgomery was in touch, obviously, with, uh, among other things, the high command in America, uh, President Eisenhower, and um, also the European high high command. And he saw firsthand how America had um, saved the world Um, uh, for democracy and freedom. And he pondered after the war, okay, so how do we say thank you to uh, the biggest nation on earth, the richest nation on earth that appears to have everything? And then he thought, well, the one thing they don't have is much of their history. So that's what he decided to do.
0: And there's a uh, famous photograph from National Geographic that shows Mayflower II sailing into New York Harbor after they went to Boston. They went to yeah. New York Harbor. And and there's this beautifully composed photograph that shows the ship sailing into New York Harbor with all kinds of ships and a blimp around them. And it, it was deemed by some group as the best photograph ever published in um, National Geographic. So some people may, may, but you can easily find that. Just look up yeah. may, Mayflower II. And the Mayflower II is still in uh, Plymouth plantation near Boston, I guess?
1: Yes, it is. And I think it's important that um, uh, your listeners um, understand that it wasn't given to the American people just for those people who can trace their uh, relations back to the original Mayflower, as many people do. It was given to everybody in the first half of the 20th century who had... A relative, or themselves, or um, father, or grandfather, or whatever, who had been involved in both the first and second world wars. So um, it's well. I think it's an interesting um, uh, place to visit because you learn a lot of some of the trials and tribulations of the original settlers, but. It's also come, you know, also at this time when democracy worldwide is under threat. I mean, mm-hmm. that is a clear mm-hmm. and, and obvious danger. I think it's something to celebrate what America's contribution to the world um, has been in terms of uh, supporting democracy around the world.
0: Amen. Amen to that. So the book is called The Wicked Pilgrim. The pilgrims, of course, came on the original Mayflower. And your dad was kind of a rakish character. So hence the wicked pilgrim
1: yeah well my my dad actually was a pretty good historian as well as being a very good journalist and he read a lot about the original settlers and he actually had a sneaking admiration for them because he realized that um while many of them were quite religious um when they got stuck um you know, they sometimes gave in to um, uh, temptation, you know, like mm-hmm. the first winter, they actually stole a large store of maize, the grain that um, uh, the the Native um, American Indians um, uh, uh, possessed. Um, and <laughs> I, I think that and some other uh bits of misbehavior from time to time endeared him to the first pilgrims
0: okay well let me uh get back to entrepreneurship for for a second you know we were saying that um entrepreneurs a natural entrepreneur tends to see stuff that others don't see and there's all kinds of products we can think of that no one knew we needed them until an entrepreneur offered them yeah and and i'm thinking we had telephones for something like 120 years before the smartphone came along and no one would have thought we needed a smartphone until now they're you can't go anywhere anywhere without your phone in your pocket your smartphone
1: exactly it's an integral part uh, of, of of your life and uh, you're right right across the board whether it's in basic industries i mean um producing milk for example in, a, in a, an agricultural environment uh for years um uh milking was done by hand um, no one thought that you could actually put a machine on a cow and take the milk out right. now you can milk twenty cows at a time, and that's one of the reasons why the milk price um is what it is and doesn't cost more than a large scotch right
0: well and speaking of milk, I mean you used to be if you wanted you know coffee, you'd put either milk or cream in your coffee now you, right. now Let, you can now but, you can have oat milk right um you know rice milk or whatever I mean all kinds of different products that are being offered and coffee is another one cup of coffee used to cost a dime now you pay you know 450 for some elaborate macchiato whatever whatever yeah so and again these are products that no one thought we needed until an entrepreneur thought of
1: them right and i you know coming back to um your mention of my involvement in the hannon foundation which um, serves older adults um, in detroit i think there are some wonderful business opportunities related to serving uh, the adult population. I mean, when you think about it, um, the average length of life has gone up quite dramatically, um, in our lifetimes. You know, when I was born, the average, um, length of life was 57. Now, uh, you know, it's over 70 and many people are living into their eighties and beyond. Mm -hmm. Um, and in Detroit in particular, I think there's some real opportunities because the average length of life in Detroit sadly is several years below the rest of the nation. There's no reason why that should be the case um, and uh, at the Hannon Foundation um, one of the things we're looking to do is um, aid people um, as they get older in developing what we call a creative aging. Um, put simply, Uh, We don't load people up into a bus and take them down to the DIA. We may do that once in a while, but that's not um, a way um, uh, to um, encourage older people to um, uh, enjoy their later lives. What we've got, uh, what we do now is provide people with paint and a brush. And we have an annual um, art competition called Emerge. Which um, and we've got an art gallery at the Hannan Foundation. And that's just one type of creative ageing. So we don't show people other people's great work, we get them to produce their own, and we have prizes. We've got a great watercolour exhibit there at the moment. We've also got a commercial kitchen, where, among other things, we're hoping to engage folks, maybe at Tech Town and, and elsewhere, who are interested in producing healthy food for older adults because what you eat, you, you are what you eat and if you eat bad stuff, um, you, you run into health problems. And, you know, part, you know, there's going to be, I believe, some major opportunities servicing um, that growing market.
0: You know, one of the stories I try to tell in my book, uh, The Englishman in Detroit, is not just, you know, Randall's story, but the whole broader Detroit story that for 100 years, Detroit was um, so reliant on the automotive industry, the most giant corporations in the world. And as that began to peter out in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s with GM and Chrysler filing for bankruptcy and so on, We had to turn to something new and for a while nobody knew what it was i mean there was talk about robotics and you know various other kinds of things but finally a small group of people and i think randall was among the very leaders there was the startup i remember you you say we're going to save detroit one startup at a time you know one startup company at a time and that people can have confidence and resurrect themselves through their own efforts through entrepreneurship and i think that's a major change in detroit now is a much more entrepreneurial economic environment than it was 25 years ago.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with you. And I think your book sets it out really well. I mean, and for the absence of doubt, I'm a very small part of anything that might be good, that um, uh, deemed good uh, uh, over that period. And you mentioned some of the major players um, in the revival of Detroit. Um, uh, I would agree with you. I mean, there's a lot of guts in Detroit, and I witnessed that firsthand when people were getting um, their pay slips, last pay slips from the auto industry, and they were turning up to uh, some of the meetings that we held. I mean, there were over a thousand at some of them. Um, we had three uh, three day courses. Um, Uh, in one summer at which there were 450 people at each each course. And, you know, it takes a lot when you've been in um, a job which is maybe quite well defined. You're part of a a team. You know what your job is. And um, uh, you don't have to think outside the box to suddenly um, turn up where you're sitting next to people who don't know what they're going to do next and you don't know what you're going to do next and you don't know 99% of what you're going to learn, have to learn in order to generate a job or a business. And um, I saw that guts firsthand and it was very impressive.
0: Yeah, you know, the, um, when you were building Astorand and then TechTown, you, you and a, maybe a handful of others were some of the lonely voices for entrepreneurship in Detroit, but now, We've built this environment, this ecosystem where we have multiple incubators, accelerators around the state in Kalamazoo and Ann Arbor and so on. There's all kinds of venture capital here now that wasn't here before. There's all kinds of pitch competitions and lots of training programs and, and lots of, you know, assistance type programs by governments, by nonprofits, whatever. So we've really built this entrepreneurial ecosystem here that, again, just didn't exist at all 25 years ago. I think, it, I think it's a remarkable achievement that we don't give ourselves enough credit for.
1: I would agree with you and I think we've got to keep reminding ourselves also that Detroit has a a really unusual location. You know, I've heard people decry uh, Detroit as a center for entrepreneurship, say say it's flyover country. Uh, You go from the east coast to the west coast, don't stop in the middle. Well guess what? In the middle there's another country right on our door, Canada, there's an opportunity to develop products and services uh, which can be exported worldwide by test marketing them in that country, which is 20 minutes away across the bridge, Um, and particularly in healthcare, for example. Think about the fact that um, you've got, separated just by a river and a small bridge, two countries with completely different healthcare systems. We have the unique opportunity here to compare um, in real time um, what works under the Canadian system and what works here and inform the whole of the United States. I mean, wouldn't, isn't there some value in that?
0: Right, still thinking like an entrepreneur, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Well, before we wrap up, let's talk about where we can find your book, the Wicked Pilgrim, where can folks get it?
1: Well, um, if they're local um, in Detroit, um, they can get it at the uh, gift shop in uh, Hannon Foundation. And just for the absence of doubt, any revenue from th- those sales will um, uh, go to the Hannan Foundation. Mm-hmm. And if not there, at www.thewickedpilgrim.com, there's a list of booksellers which includes large ones as well as small independent stores.
0: And it's on Amazon, too. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Good. And my book, The Englishman in Detroit, which recounts Randall's adventures here in Detroit, building his uh, business, Astrand and then TechTown, as well as uh, a lot of, I think, interesting case studies of entrepreneurship in what works and what doesn't work. That you can find on Amazon.com, where you can find anything, I guess, and as well as local <laughs> bookstores, lots of great local independent bookstores order it through any of them. So Randall, it's been a pleasure. We could go on all all day, but I just want to thank you for being here. And again, the uh, podcast is Inside Michigan Business and keep tuning in. We'll be back for more. Randall, thanks very much.
1: Thank you. All right. That wraps up this episode
0: of the Inside Michigan Business podcast. Be sure to subscribe to receive programming notifications and special event announcements by going to InsideMichiganBusiness.com. Follow us on your favorite social media platform and wherever podcasts are downloaded. Thank you for listening.